out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love the special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, filmmaker, author, poet and music producer. It can only be the one and only Jude Rawlins, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, he's done a phenomenal amount of work and has one time been a member of the Lena Lovitch Band, which we'll find out more in this fascinating interview. Anyway, look, there's lots of detail, so um, make notes, I will test you at the end. But anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jude, it's over to you. Uh, I, at a very young age, I did actually. Yeah, um, I, I can I can actually tell you the exact dates. <laughs> it was. Um, I like dates. It was New Year's Day, nineteen seventy-eight, and uh, um, basically, it, I was talking to my dad about you know what well, what happens to nineteen seventy-seven now? Does it ever come again? And he's explaining to me, you know, no, that's it. It's gone forever now, and it was a really strange realization in this sort of ephemeral moment and my mother was downstairs playing a record at the time and the music that she was playing suddenly registered with me and it was actually um linda ronstadt's first solo album and, and her version of the uh the dolphins i distinctly remember hearing that at that particular moment and uh and i just became almost instantly fascinated with music and especially with vinyl records you know and um, they they became a, a kind of a, something almost sacred quite quickly. And uh, I used to play my parents' records to pieces. And then, of course, eventually you start hearing your own music. And I think the, the watershed moment for me there was um, seeing Whistle Test on TV. Uh, I think it was on a Thursday night then. Yes. Uh, so Top of the Pops would be on on BBC One which was all, you know, very uh, um, well planned and well rehearsed and very polished and everything. And then you switch over to BBC Two and this really weird show with like live performance and strange animations and stuff would come on. And that was always more interesting to me, you know. And uh, I remember, um, well, I couldn't remember any specific bands, but I do, what I do remember was seeing Passions on Top of the Pops performing I'm In Love With a German Film Star which I guess was 1981 or something. Yes. And, and, and I'd never heard music like that. And the idea of music was something far more uh, ephemeral and weird and inventive than I had realised. And it could go anywhere and do anything and be anything. Kind of, it kind of sort of struck me then. And, uh, and then within about a year, I, I discovered punk and I was kind of on my way. <laughs> Yes, God, that's amazing. So, were you? Did you sort of? Were your parents quite hip and happening in a in a sort of um, musical well, kind of in way? Their, in, in their own way. I mean, my my, I'm from. I was from a very working class, you know, council estate on the southern side of Birmingham, you know. And uh, my dad worked in Woolworths on the record counter, and he would, when records got scratched and they were throwing them away, he would rescue them and bring them home. So we had all kinds of weird stuff coming in the house all the time, you know. My God, yeah. And I'd usually give it a listen. And I remember um, one day he brought home Dame Edna Reveridge's um, Every Mother Wants a Boy Like Elton. And 
And I remember hearing the B-side, which was her doing a spoof punk song called S&M Lady. And I remember hearing this, and that was probably the first time I ever heard punk, was, was, the, was the spoof version. And, um, and then around about the same time, I remember seeing graffiti around town, and, and I saw the name Sex Pistols for the first time sprayed on a wall somewhere, you know. So um, it, it gradually started to seep into my psyche and then as a teenager it all they, it all started to connect up you know and, and yes absolutely and with the uh, was the to, going back earlier was the dolphin song was that tim hardin who did the yeah he wrote the he i think he wrote he wrote it and a few people recorded tim buckley did a great version of it actually oh, on sophronia I think that's um, the one yeah yeah and uh and actually his version is, is is amazing but it was the um yeah, it was the, the version on Hands Sewn Homegrown was the name of the album. I think it was the closing track on it. And that whole album actually meant quite a lot to me. And and then, you know, the albums in my parents' collection at that time, which were quite a lot of Elton John, um, but on my mum's side and some Elvis Presley. And then, um, you know, kind of a few kind of like stranger things like... Uh, um, Try to think of an example now. Um, well, Johnny Mitchell's Hegira, which had the most fascinating album cover, I remember. And I didn't understand the music at all, but I couldn't stop listening to it because I loved the voice so much. Yes. Is that the one with the, it's got a track called Black Crow on it? Uh, I don't, I might do. I don't remember that one. Um, it's a few years since I've heard it. It's the one with um, Furry Sings the Blues. Yes. God, that is yeah, stunning. Yeah, yeah. But I think there is one about Black Crow. And I do think, yeah, yeah I do know yeah. that album. Yeah. yeah. The opening song is a really beautiful song called Amelia. And, uh, um, and she had a great band at the time. She had people like Jacko Pistorius in her backing band, you know. It's, uh, I mean, obviously, I was too young to appreciate any of this then, but it's funny how, you know, I've, I'm one of these people who, having gone through, you know, 30, 40 years almost of, of listening to music, I've, I've come back around to the stuff that I, was listening to when I first started listening to music and thought actually it's really good I still really love it you know yes well I think that Joni Mitchell period with Blue, Cordon Spark and uh, the hissing of summer lawns as, as well as and um, Hajara are just kind of incredible but I do like some of the earlier stuff because it's just the lyrical content of it well uh, the, when was it the um Clouds I think that might have been her first album actually I mean that's an yeah. amazing record it's a stunningly well-written record you know and um, it has a, a the opening song on that. I think it's Tin Angel, and she mentions the Bleecker Street Cafe in it, where they all used to hang out at the time. And I remember being in New York and being in Bleecker Street and looking for the cafe. <laughs> I was on the phone to my dad at the time in England, and I was like, "Hey, Dad, I'm in Bleecker Street." You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those. Well, it's important. Yes, shared moments. You know. Did it also have Chelsea Morning on that one as well? Yeah. Woke up, it was a Chelsea Morning. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the very next song on the, on the album after Teen Angel, yeah. Was that the one that starts about I've got to find, or got to find someone to love today? Or, or... Yeah, that's, that's, that's Teen Angel, yeah. God, In a Bleecker Street cafe, I found someone to love today, yeah. That's the light. God, I tell you, that is, um, <laughs> I do, I do yeah. love those. And it's going back to that song, for, was it Furry? Furry, Furry? Furry Sings the Blues, yeah. When, when, and she sort of, does she sort of talks the narrative doesn't she sort of and everybody suddenly he says something and everyone laughs and and the way she describes that scene yeah. is yeah 
It's she just... even does his voice when she's doing the line that he's supposed to be saying. She actually puts on this gruff voice when she does it. You know. Yeah, I know. Well, when she did Nobody the Mi- Miles of Isles album, I know she puts a little bit bit on there when you know she she does the waitress voice on whatever mm-hmm. song it is. And again, I thought that was yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think that ever kind of dates you might get a bit bored and think i'll give it a a miss but then come come the autumn i always find myself going towards blue you know blue suddenly comes Mm. on the turntable like you know the first hot day of summer you put on the the summer lawns actually um i listened to uh ladies of the canyon not that long ago and it's still an amazing i mean those albums you know and for the rose it's that whole period she was just unassailably good really and not like anybody else at all you know no Apparently, um, um, I heard that um, "For the Roses" would, was Kate Bush's favourite album. I don't know if that's true, but it, it makes a kind of sense if it was. Yeah, I would have thought so. It was that, and then obviously we got Carol King's "Tapestry" as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, when did you? I mean, did you leave? I mean, you, so you came from South Birmingham. Were you part of that scene? Did you see the face? I was going to say, you know what I'm going to talk about. King Rocker, the film about Robert Lloyd and the and the Nightingales. Did you see the film? I mean, um, you know what? I, I haven't seen that, but um, it was uh, it was produced by my um, uh, former manager and and the record label that my band Subterraneous was signed to. Fire. I actually funded that film, so um, I haven't seen it. But they also funded Oil City Confidential. You know the um, Dr. Feelgood, yeah. Nice. Well, there you go. Yes, I did. I did an interview with your man and Stuart Lee. It was a three-way chat. Chris Carr. Yeah. Really? Well, I, well, he was the other one in the interview. I must admit, there was Stuart right. Lee. He was a bit like, oh my god, there's Stuart Lee talking yeah. about it, and then the other guy who produced it, and ones um, maybe. And I mean, I, I actually saw. I because funnily enough, the last time I um, saw any of those guys. Was it um was it a Dream Syndicate gig at the Lexington in London the night before I flew to the States, and uh, Stuart Lee was there, um with with them and I didn't quite know why he was there but then later on I found out it's because they were working on this project the Nightingales film with him right so I I'll, yeah that it must have been him because to be honest you know it was like oh yes this is the guy who's also sort of part of it and do you want to interview all of them it's like oh yeah fair enough so that was so yeah so yeah we got a taste of birmingham at that stage didn't we in our lives the the sort of the late 70s and and early 80s so that was um so did we did you stay in birmingham for your kind of the growing teen period as well and sort of um yeah i was i mean i had my first bands um from when i was 15 and and uh so yeah, we, that's where we were based, and we were playing around, you know, that area, the south side of town, and it was around about the same time. There were a few bands in that area that came through at that time, like the Primitives was one. God, and, we love Tracy Tracy. Yeah, and um, I actually I had not seen them in person for well since about 1987, 88, and then uh, I, I played the Rebellion Festival with Lainer a couple of years ago, and, and we were on the bill with them, and so we had a big reunion. <laughs> It's kind of fun. And, uh, Were the photos from that area as well? A band called the Photos. There was a band called the Pictures. They were from Rubri, Yeah, I don't remember the photos. Though. Oh, the photos. No, there was definitely a band called the Photos. So, so what? What day? What year was was your sort of when you were hanging out with the Primitives? That was that would have been eighty seven. 
Right. So that was they were well on their way with Crash and stuff like that. Yeah. So did you? Well, need... actually, no. They hadn't released it yet when I first met them. They were still they they they, they were still on Lazy, the, the independent label. And, the Lazy record, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, also the other band that was really happening at the time around there was Fuzzbox, um, who were signed to a label called Vindaloo. Robert and, Lloyd. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And they were, I mean, actually, Maggie from Fuzzbox is still a friend of mine, and so is Vix. So I still occasionally, you know, communicate with them on Facebook and, you know, we're, um, yeah. So it was an interesting time. Um, But the funny thing was is that none of those bands were ever cool with music press, you know. The music press hated Birmingham and everything about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit strange, really, because there was, because I have to say, there's, there were such a sort of amazing scene because you had people like Terry and Jerry who were stunning. And then you had, like you said, um, we've got a fuzz box. We're going to use it with their classic albums, Boston, Steve Austin. Yeah. And then the Mighty Lemon Drops with David Newton as well. Oh, I absolutely love the Lemon Drops. They're like one of my, they, they, they were amazing. They were truly amazing. I, I'm still kind of miffed that they're not as legendary as they should be. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you... I, there's a I mean, recently there's like somebody posted the um live version of happy head on youtube and i saw it and i'd, I'd forgotten how good they were live you know but they were a really truly brilliant band yes well i do remember when john peel played like an angel and sort of having to go and buy yeah. it straight away and yeah it just you know because coming from norwich and you probably realize this a bit we were a little bit starved with music we had the higgs and serious drinking and the farmer's boys which were fantastic but there wasn't a huge amount going on but then you know listen to John Peel religiously throughout the 80s there was always kind of oh yes this band from Birmingham and this band from you know it was like god how many bands did you get and then and then you had Ted Chippington who did that great Vindaloo special with uh rocking rocking with Rita which we I think I was the first person in my town certainly in my school to own a copy of um I don't want to live with monkeys by the Higsons and uh (laughs) um, I still to this day remember how much fun you know that that, that record was <laughs> <laughs> yes but then uh, then it all puttered out and we just all went yeah. oh, look at that it's all happening in manchester it's happening everywhere apart from norwich oh, um yeah that was the bane of our existence really was that we weren't from manchester and um there was a a, a journalist from the nme called delhi for delhi yeah and, uh, and i knew delhi really well and like years later i asked him it's like you know you're always at my shows all you people you know when they want a night off they come to my gigs but they never wrote about me you know at the time and like what's going on and he said well they were basically under orders not to write about anyone who wasn't from manchester you know that was just an edict from the editors at the time and i thought that's typical you know but the charlatans actually lied and said they were from manchester and they got written about (laughs) (laughs) yes that is, uh, that is, yeah, I mean, looking back at the the press, because I did an, an interview at the weekend with a guy who was in the band, Shelly Ann Orphan. Oh, who, yeah. And, um, and it, who was that? Press, who was that? Um, Jem. Okay, I remember them very well. And, I mean, it was like, uh, I mean, actually, this part of the story, which was kind of, even now, is a bit upsetting, really. Well, Caroline um, Dunn, I think. Pardon? 
Didn't Caroline Crawley passed away, I think, a few years ago. Yeah, no, she died five years ago, but there was another story he told me, which was a bit kind of quite horrendous. Um, but kind of, yeah. But yeah, he said that they just went, oh, this middle-class band. He said, I, I, I was born in Bournemouth. I left school at 16 with three O levels. We went to London. We just wanted to make an original sound. That's our thing. We, we were, yeah. He said, we were punk. We wanted to make something that wasn't just run yeah. of the mill. So we used this, we used that. And all they could say was, oh, you just middle-class it's like yeah you know please yeah. you know do yeah. some research you know i've got three o levels and i come from a poor you know working class yeah. family you know it's like just yeah. because you know we try to do something different you don't have to just always say this is the worst record in the world but that's all they got you know well, they're obsessed with class culture you know absolutely obsessed with it and you know it's one of the things that um i was always hugely uncomfortable with that you know and um, it's been one of the biggest revelations of my life. It's been coming to America and realizing it literally doesn't exist here. I mean, there is a class system, but it's not like we're used to. You know, when you you know whatever it is you are, that's it for life. You know. Yes, it's it's a very strange thing because I was, I suppose, I was born in the in the countryside of East Anglia, so things like punk didn't happen. And to be honest, we were sort of left, and you know. You know, having working yeah. class parents, you know, it was just leave school at 16 with a yeah. CSE. <laughs> because... Gosh, I remember those, yeah. <laughs> I was actually, the first, my, my year was the first year to do the GCSE. Right. Nice. They had aspirations, didn't they? So look, we mentioned post-punk, which was very mm -hmm. exciting, including all those bands like Peel and uh, Magazine and um, the Nightingales, the fall. And then for me, 83, massive year, the Smiths appeared. Smiths, then for five yeah. years, we had the Smiths. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that period was quite golden. So what were you, what was you, what were you sort of doing during that period? Was, was you, um, had you left school by then? No, I was still at school uh, in 83. I mean, I was still at school when the Smiths came out, but I certainly remember what a watershed moment that was for everybody, you know, especially... Let's face it, you know, working class white kids, you know, um, because, you know, we'd all grown up with the, you know, whole attitude, you know, the boys don't cry attitude, you know, and everything. And to suddenly have, you know, working class white kids from Manchester on TV waving flowers around and saying it's okay to have feelings was like a, it was a, it was like a massive, huge deal, you know. And to this day, I um, like to impress upon people how important you know the, the smiths were i mean if if you were literally if if, if you were a council estate kid or wherever you know in thatcher's britain at that time um that would they they were the first real kind of almost like road to damascus bands you know, in fact i don't remember another band having the effect that they had on my generation you know, and uh and they were so they were kind of our band you know they were every, you know they were really 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 important and i was listening at that point i was listening to punk and i was listening to post-punk and uh, probably my favorite bands um that were kind of already happening at that point was echo and the bunnyman uh, who i always loved and, you know and psychedelic furs and all that kind of stuff was was a really really big deal but um but then when the smiths came along that was like a that was a whole other separate thing really you know there was there was music and there was the music scene but then there was the smiths which is more like a religion <laughs> yes well i yeah i completely agree the smiths yeah. 
I suppose it was kind of interesting because at that stage we'd had sort of bands like Simple Minds and U2 mm. and, and Echo and the Bunnymen. But, but I know, you know, obviously U2 still continued. But there was something like, God, the Smiths are here now. You know, mm. like suddenly... Yeah, it changed everything, yeah. It, yeah. it did. And, you know, there was something that almost left people like Echo and the Bunnymen and Pete Wiley and people like that a little bit behind. I suppose they might have got a bit complacent and thought we're the we're the hot thing and then suddenly Well I mean I think I think some of those bands still went on to make great records after that. But it was yeah, I mean in, in terms of there actually being like a zeitgeist moment for, for people like us, it was the Smiths and you know, unassailably so, you know, and I mean, you know, other people made great music, but everything the Smiths did was like, you know, hugely important for our survival you know? yes absolutely and were you sort of feeling at that stage that music was going to be your passion and career oh yeah I already knew that yeah I already knew that I mean I, I'm I never I, I never entertained anything else um I when I was like five years old I used to sing into a biro with a piece of string tied to it to make it feel like a microphone and you know, sing along to like Elvis Presley songs, and I don't know. That I was I was never going to do anything else. It, I mean, I almost like it. It always felt like it chose me. I didn't even have a choice in it, really. Yes. And when did you first get a guitar? Um, I was fifteen, I think, and I went to there, there was a there was there used to be a frozen food supermarket called B Jams. And I got a part-time job in there getting paid £1.20 an hour. And I managed to save up 30 quid. And I bought a, a 1960s Japanese guitar, a Zenta guitar, which was a complete piece of junk. But it was a guitar. It was an electric guitar, you know. And I couldn't afford an amplifier, so we just plugged it into an old record player. And, you know. <laughs> and off you went. And did yeah. it feel, did you suddenly think this is it? We're, we're on the on, on, on yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we used to get, get a little bit um, resentful because, um, you know, we, we were using, I mean, I remember we, we actually, me and the bass player, we walked one night, we walked like five miles out into the middle of nowhere to buy a secondhand bass off somebody for like 20 pounds, which I think was like a satellite bass. It's the cheapest bass ever made. And then we walked all the way home with it because we didn't have extra money for the bus fare. So we actually had to just walk out you know for five miles and then carry this thing home and uh you know so we went to those kind of lengths just to get these cheap terrible instruments and then when we started playing there were a lot of middle class bands who were basically spending their student grants on really expensive equipment you know and they all sounded great i remember um you know seeing ride and they all had uh fenders and rickenbackers and all this sort of stuff and we were like traipsing around in the middle of nowhere with west tones and you know satellites <laughs> yes my god that's quite something isn't that but commitment. we made that part of the sound you know we played into that you know and that became a signature of, of what we did you know and it did it didn't sound like what everyone else was doing that was what was fun about it yes and did you i mean at what what stage did you sort of form your first band uh, well, that was then. That was '87. I mean, I actually uh, I did front a punk band when I was like 12 years old, <laughs> 13 or something like that. Um, but my first real band was uh, when I was 15, which was my, it was was a band called Angelhead, 
Right. And uh, we got a deal with Rough Trade, and you know, we, we you know we we did some stuff, and um, and it all went wrong pretty quickly. We had we had about a four year run with that band, and then um, yeah, and 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 it all kind of split up because we were so naive. We it was like there were a lot of poor decisions being made, and a lot of you know um, a lot of different drugs being imbibed, and just. You know, a lot of screwing up, basically. Yes, well, it's good to do it once. Yeah. And so you were on Rough Trade Records? Yeah, in 1989. 89? Yeah, yeah. That is a bit of a watershed moment in Rough Trade history, isn't it, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was, a, it was catastrophic for me to ever be involved with that label, you know. Um, I mean, I, well, I say that, but actually... It was catastrophic in in so far as like we had a we did a, we had a licensing deal with them and uh, the, when they went bankrupt in 1991 we should have got all our rights back and but what happened was because they got bought out by uh, several major labels who kind of and and they had loads of debts so the receivers never allowed us to get our rights back and they went up with Sony and it was just it was a complete nightmare and it was, we didn't have the money to fight it you know so but what it meant was that I came out of that situation out of that band understanding a hell of a lot more about the business than than i did before and uh that standing that put me in very good stead later on you know? yes well i would imagine actually and did you get around to recording an album yeah we actually recorded uh i think we recorded two and a half albums as well as lots and lots of demos and uh a couple of eps and you know which were, eps were very much the culture of the time you know and uh yeah, we did. I mean, nothing um, ever lasted very long in those days because of you know, what, what what we used to call shelf life, you know. So yes. if you weren't on a major label, if you if you were you know in on a tiny little independent label, and then you your rights went into kind of some sort of limbo, just you forget about having a record out. <laughs> it just wasn't possible because you couldn't fight the business in those days, you know. That's so. That is such an amazing thought, actually, isn't it? Angel head, blimey! Yeah. So, so uh, do you sort of have any right over it at the moment? Any, you know, sort of um, access to it? Um, I, 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 I did get the uh, rights back there a few years ago because um, the publishing period expired. Luckily, the publishing wasn't with the same company. And uh, that, that period, I think it was like 25 years or something, and it expired. So I got the publishing rights back. And then I went to Sony and said, are you, are you ever going to do anything with this material? And they, they couldn't, they didn't realize they had it, you know, it meant nothing to them. So, um, so I did get the rights back, but we haven't, haven't done anything with it because, you know, I don't, um, I've got too many other things to do really, you know. Um, yes. I'm not going to fall over myself to do repackage reissue stuff that I recorded when I was 17 which I don't even listen to you know? <laughs> so. yes but it was just kind of an interesting period because I, I I sort of I know we were talking about genres but there was a sort of a for me the 80s there was a definitely a moment where between 83 to 87 you know the Smiths had such a big kind of mm. like chapter and importance and when they broke up and then you know ecstasy comes along as well as other things, but also the next generation of, you know, 16 to 18 year olds are looking for their sound. And obviously there was kind of the, the move towards the kind of rave culture with the soup dragons and happy Mondays and 
I suppose you mentioned the charlatans as well, didn't you? And Primal Scream and the all oh, stone roses, yeah. And, I mean, and, and the little old yeah. stone roses. And so there was that kind of okay, things are moving and changing, kind of again. So I, I, I mean, I, I I really hated all that stuff. You know, there was there was one band in particular which represented everything that I hated, which was the Mock Turtles. And um, I, I just that you know that there were all these kind of guitar bands that were more than willing to. Um, compromised everything to sort of jump on the Manchester thing, you know, which which of course started out as electronic music, you know, and the kind of Hacienda scene and the Acid House stuff, that's where that all began. So seeing these indie bands trying to fit in with that for uh, just struck me as like a marketing device, really. I, I'm, probably not all of them. There were probably some of them that were genuine, but it meant absolutely nothing to me because I, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to to... to to completely change the form by then, you know, and, and make as much noise as possible and didn't want to fit in with any of that stuff, you know. So it, I wasn't that sorry that we did, that we never did fit in with it. <laughs> no, absolutely. But how did it then, because quite quickly, there was the sort of, that suddenly everything's like, oh, the Seattle scene is coming. And I remember John Peel playing this compilation, the Sub Pop 100 series. Mm-hmm. And there was like bands like Nirvana, who suddenly came to the Norwich Arts Centre supporting TAD in 89. Yeah, I was actually talking about that tour yesterday to somebody. Um, the tour that people forget because Nirvana were the completely unknown support act the first time they came to the UK and the... Uh, yeah, um, yeah, there's quite a few stories about that era, you know. Yes, um, but interestingly, I when they came to Norwich, I I did an interview with the three members of Nirvana, which I got, I still have on tape, and um, I have right. slightly archived it. So yes, I had forty-five yeah. minutes in the company of them, yeah. having a chat about life. And to be honest, yeah. I didn't, you know. It was just one of those things I'd only heard that, you know, I did, I got the album Bleach, which yeah. I thought was fantastic, but then I didn't really know. So they filled me in with what life was like in Seattle, which sounded quite yeah. grim, actually. Yeah. But yeah, well, it was quite... I, there was a band that I, that I, from Seattle that I was already into at that point, which uh, called The Gets, and um, they were almost completely unknown outside Seattle. And I can't quite remember how I came to first hear them, but I absolutely loved them. And... Um, so I, I grew quite an affinity for the sort of American bands at the time, but also um, because because I did because I wasn't into the kind of whole Manchester scene. The bands that really reached me in in the late eighties were you know the American bands that were signed to labels like Four AD in the UK, so like Throwing Muses, Pixies, Ultra Vivid Scene, stuff like that, and they were like just on the cusp just before kind of grunge happened and you know i think a lot of the grunge bands were fans of those bands as well you know so that was the sort of the crossing over point for me and but then also the, there was a little there was a short burst of something happening in the uk at that time which was the what they now call shoegaze um but which was um bands like ride and my bloody valentine and and stuff like that and the, the Galaxy one, one, 500. Yeah, Galaxy 500. Yeah, well, they were American, though. And, oh, um, yeah, well spotted. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> they were definitely part of that that era. And uh, but then and the with band- the, with that scene, there was the the great and and this is the kind of the the home of shoegaze, I suppose, was yeah. the, the the Sarah Records. Yeah, yeah. The home of Sarah yeah. Records with yeah. with all those bands. 
yeah. Tallulah Gosh, let's face it, we love them. And and uh, actually, there was one. There was a really good. Was it was it Bleach? They were from Norwich, weren't they? Ipswich. Or, no, they were from Ipswich. Yeah, that's right. I remember now. That's coming back to me. There was uh, there were a few bands from o- over east. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Charlottes. They were from the east as well. And um, and actually, the band that, that really meant the most to me from that whole era was Curve. Um, who were like a quantum leap, really, for especially if you were in the, in the industry, if you were in the band at the time, because Curve made all their records in the basement in their in the house. You know, they didn't use commercial studios when they started out, and you know, you were able to go to your record label and say, "Here's this really noisy thing racket that we made in the garage, and we want you to release that as a record." And don't say no because Curve make their all their records in the in the basement, and they're in the charts. You know, <laughs> so yes. Yeah. But yeah. that that period of the late 80s, there was the whole squat scene, wasn't there? Especially in London with a place yeah. ambulance station that had lots of obscure bands like The Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. But then also you yeah. had that North London scene with people like My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the yeah, Faith. Camden, the whole kind of Camden elite. As the it elite, was, yeah. I know. Yeah. And they always used to drink in the good mixer in, <laughs> in Inverness Street. Yeah. And, and Phil King seemed to be in most bands. At that time, that's right. Yeah, he was, and the only <laughs> band he wasn't in was Lush. And later on, he was in Lush. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yes, dear old Phil King. So, um, yeah, so there was that whole scene going on as well. The, the sort of the groovy people, because I remember seeing there was there was a couple of amazing tours. There was like my bloody Valentine at the Art Center with Silverfish playing, and then I did see the Pixies and Throw Muses at the UEA on a double yeah. field tour as well. Yeah. So, I mean, 89 was a good year for sort of tours. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. thought, apart from the dance scene from Manchester, or Manchester. I mean, Throw Muses gave a lot of starts to a lot of bands, actually, because I, I, I think the 89 tour, um, the support act on that tour was the Sundays. I remember that's the first time I ever saw the Sundays was opening for Throw Muses. And, and, of course, they became a really big deal in their own right as well, you know. And... Um, I know. So, yeah, they, they, I mean, Kristen Hirsch just has more taste than anybody else I've ever met. So. Yes, well, absolutely. And um, yes, still still doing it. Did you read her book? I know her very well. She's a good friend of mine. Um, yes, the book is amazing. It's hilarious. No, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very, she's, if any, I, I'm so glad she wrote a book because I always thought, you know, that the way her mind works, it would be so entertaining to see that laid out on a page. You know? so, <laughs> and the new yes. one apparently is even better. Oh, right. I've only, I've only come across the, the one that came out this year, probably. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So now she's, I think she's with Fred, isn't she again? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, um, her drummer, Rob, and I are making some plans to do some stuff <laughs> as well. Um because yeah. I need, you know, I mean, I, I, if I, if I was to record something now in America, so who am I going to call in America? So who's the best drummer I know this side of the pond? And it's definitely Rob. So Rob Ayler's from Kristen's band. Yes, but wait, it, yeah. you're probably quite spoiled, aren't you? Actually, for for drummers. But then, so then, what happens then? Once, once Angel Head, did you have a moment where you just all said, "That's it"? You did a Ziggy Stardust and sort of finished the <clears> band. I, I. Yeah, I I really felt like I, we couldn't start again when 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 things like when Rough Trade collapsed and we had management problems. I think we had like five different managers in four years, and and it you know it just my God, you sound like Morrissey. 
yeah it was it was really really difficult and and it was um physically very challenging and um i i mean it, it was it was there was proper insanity going on at that time as well as lots and lots of drugs and lots of you know and somebody was going to get killed eventually <laughs> so um and then yeah our bass player quit because he he actually wanted to move to manchester and i think he's the only musician who's ever lived in manchester who wasn't in the fall at any point you know and uh um, he, had, he had his own band called lost in space for a while who were kind of fun but um we um yeah we just sort of we kept it going for a a little while but we couldn't get back on the roads for various reasons and and, uh, and in the end i just decided i wanted to try doing something else so yes it, you didn't sort of get sort of swept along with that whole um grebo scene of like pop will eat itself and um no bands. but i knew them i knew I, yeah I, I mean i knew them um i actually um uh yeah they were I actually quite like Pop Release itself. And I I was very close to uh, Mark from Census Things, Mark Keds. I knew him for seemingly forever, you know, and, uh, you know, he passed away recently, a few months ago. And... Yes, cheesy crazy. I just did, yeah. a, uh, just did an interview with Kaz, the drummer, Yeah. on Friday. That was... Yeah. That gets messy, doesn't it, really? I mean, it was wild. You know, they were fairly insane times, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but at the same time, as as he was saying, that it was quite extraordinary that the amount of gigs he they played at that stage and they would just say to the promoter, you know, can we come and support this band? And mainly because they just thought, well, that would mean, mean that we can get him free and then we can see the main band that we would like well, to I see. Used to, I, I used to get gigs by giving the wrong directions to support bands so they wouldn't show up at the venue and then we just turn up with our instruments and volunteer to fill in. <laughs> you know, so all that kind of stuff happened, yeah. So were you still based in Birmingham at that stage or had you gone um, to... That was, um, no, I left. That's that, After Angelhead broke up, I left Birmingham and I went around a few places for a while but inevitably wound up in London at that point. Yes. So then your next band, The Subterraneans. Yeah. How did that sort of develop? Well, what happened there was that um there was there was a bit of interest in me from the industry for what I was going to do next um after Angelhead and you know um and I decided that I actually I had a couple of offers and I I had a the funny thing was the catalyst for all this was a telephone conversation with Tony Halliday, who was the singer in Curve. She called me up one day and talked to me for hours. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. And she says, well, just, you just do it again. Only this time you do it better, you know, and um, which was, she was right, you know. And, and also I'd grown up a little bit and I knew a bit more, I was a bit more savvy about the industry by that point. And, and I had this uh, offer on the table from a, a major label, actually. Um, and I realized in that process, I realized that I didn't possess the solo mentality that you really, really need to have if you're going to go solo. So I realized that what I wanted to do was start another band. But I realized the best way for me to go about that, to, to really, really do what I wanted to do musically, was to make the record myself when we're just pulling in one or two other people and then let the sound that we naturally created develop into a band. Um, yeah. So Subterraneans really began 
as a solo project, but it grew into a band kind of, you know, by the time the first album was, was finished, we were a real band, <laughs> you know. And that but was it was it was very much a case of I could just play to people what we were doing and say, what do you think? Are you into this? You know, and, you know we had some interesting people trying out for us at one point. <laughs> yes. Did you, because you've got, a, it was a four piece, wasn't it? With yeah. Guy, yeah. Robin and Carl. Did you all That's sort right. of, um, how did you all sort of find, was it just kind of an organic process? That the well, four- I already knew Carl. Um, Carl was from, he's from my hometown. And, uh, um, and he, started playing guitar and and he was technically very good and also he had, he had access to some equipment you know um but and carl had done things like he shot videos for angelhead and stuff you know because he was the only person we knew with a video camera <laughs> and, yes um so we i already knew him and then he he was playing guitar and he was at university then and he was playing guitar in some i think it was a production of the wall pink floyd thing that he was doing at, at Cambridge Uni and uh, and it was a whole other world to what I was used to you know and um, but you know technically he was very very good and I was the renegade part element of the, the band you know so you know, I would make a horrendous noise which made it all very exciting but then he would rein it in and keep it you know going in a certain direction so the combination of the two of us seemed to work quite well and uh, and then we found um, Eventually, we found Guy, um, who was like, you know, old enough to be our dad. Basically, he played with Van de Graaff Generator, and that was his band for years. And but he was just technically and musically the best musician I'd ever heard. And I was like, I really want to work with him. And and then we all got along so well that that just gelled. And then and Robin was somebody who he knew, um, and. Um, and when Robin came in, it, he was, Robin's like the quietest, most gentle person you could ever meet. You know, he's like the classic proper bass player, you know, mm. like the Paul Jones, the, that, he's that good, you know. Um, but he's also like, you know, really sweet and you can't help but like him. And we'd been through, I think at one point we even um, auditioned uh, Paul Raven from Ken and Joke, wanted to, um, get involved with us and, and he was off his face all the time every time I met him and I thought oh, that's not going to work you know because I, I was trying to get away from all that stuff <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then when Robin Robin showed up at my flat in Camden and I'd sent him a, a, some songs on a, on a, on a tape and, the, and he came like a week later and he knew all the songs and he played them perfectly so you know we went out for fish and chips and by the end of that I just knew that that was it we had our band now <laughs> Yes, absolutely. My God, I, I would imagine you must have got a bit bored with the the rock and roll lifestyle, actually. Um, yeah, I, well, you know, I didn't want to die. You know, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to live, and um, I yeah, and it was an interesting process, like getting into you know try, trying 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 to be live a sober lifestyle amongst all that. Um, I actually found it pretty easy because once I was stone cold sober i realized how embarrassing everybody else was when they weren't so (laughs) my god and then you must have had to live through the whole brit pop period during the your london phase which was quite sort of cocaine and champagne really wasn't it yeah yeah i mean and i was living on chalk farm road so it was literally happening outside my front door you know (laughs) 
My God, you must have seen Phil King every day walking by. Oh, just that's the least of it. I mean, I, the person who I used to see all the time was, um, um, oh God, the guy from the Otez. Uh, oh, Luke. Luke, Luke Haynes. I used to see Luke Haynes all the time, wandering up and down outside my house. And uh, I mean, eventually, if, if you live in Camden High Street, eventually you meet everybody, you know. And <laughs> I, work, I worked on, um, uh, I was working on the, 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 the t-shirt store. I worked on a, there was a store on the market on, on the high street outside the Oxford Arms selling bootleg music videos. And I worked on there until I got arrested because Mick Jagger made a complaint about me. And then I moved on to selling t-shirts and I used to be outside in the freezing cold weather and Joe Strum used to bring me hot chocolate. <laughs> you know, nice. he felt sorry for me, you know, so, and he used to if hang I'm... out with and, and just hang, he, used to, he used to hang out all afternoon just talking, you know, talking about music and politics wow. and everything, you know. So, yes, Paul, yeah, so Mick wasn't so keen, was he, really? No, no, he had been arrested, yeah. God, that's exciting. That's another story, though. But. That is another story, <laughs> isn't it? But, um, yeah, so your first album, which was April, May, June, yeah, did that come together relatively easily, you know, no. the writing? No, no, no. Um, I was struggling with a lot of... Um, personal problems when I made that album and it, it took far too long and, and I couldn't get anything right I couldn't get anything to sound the way I wanted it to and um but eventually you know we got there and and um when it came out we we had pressed like a hundred white label uh, copies of it and sent them to clubs which isn't the way you would normally do that kind of music you know and it got picked up by in Europe especially like places like Paradiso in Amsterdam Mm-hmm. They used to, there, was a, there was a song on it called Dream Fades Into Dark which they used to play every Friday night at the parody so apparently it was like really really big with the dance kids you know and um, so they had their band their, their sort of like electro bands like um, Erotic Dissidents and Taste of Sugar and all these sort of things who would be playing our record before they came on which was really bizarre so we got into a bit of a crossover situation in Europe which really launched us you know sort of saved us actually um and it got us away from needing to, uh, to to go crawling to the music industry every time we wanted to do something, you know. Um, so with that, just... but with that particular release, did you were you on a label at this stage, or did you? Continue? We had our own label. We, um, after after my experience with Rough Trade, I decided I never wanted to be in a situation where uh, we owed money. I mean, I I, I was quite frugal all the time, even with even in the Angelhead days, you know, when we got some money from anything. I would buy equipment with it. So, because my feeling was, if we're going to go broke, let's go broke with all the gear we need to make a record, you know, rather yes. than. And, uh, and that's why the curve situation was so important because it meant that we could argue that the record we made in the living room was good enough to release because it's good enough for them, you know. And um, so, when it came to um, Subterraneans, I actually put my foot down and I was like, well, I never want to record in a commercial studio ever again. You know, um, we're always going to make records in our own way, in our own time, on our own equipment, and and have a completely take it or leave it approach to releasing it. And it meant I never had to go to labels for money to make records. You know, mm. um, so I would bring a finished product and say, "Do you want to you want to license this for three years or five years or whatever?" And they didn't have to lay out any money to do it. So, they, but eventually, somebody would always do it for you. You know, somebody would always put a record out for you. 
That's interesting because um, I did an interview with Miles Copeland, who had a similar experience yeah. after his various kind of disasters in the early seventies, kind of doing various tours and stuff. He, you know, obviously he was part of the police. Yeah, but he they'd recorded the album and it was all done, so he just took it to various labels, including A and M. And it was a bit like, well, you don't have to you don't have to go to your accountant and work out if you've got the money. You, you know, it's done. You just have to yeah. put it out. And it was like, exactly. And they didn't, and obviously, you know, the rest is history. So, did you did you have a sort of similar bargaining part? I just want also, how did you get on with that kind of approach when? You know, three members, three other members of the band. Who were you ever worried that they were going to say, "Oh, this is taking a bit too long," and we, you know, and possibly leave, or were, um, were they quite committed? Actually, weirdly not, because when we, whenever we played together, we, it, it, we we had a really good chemistry between the four of us, and, and uh, I mean, when we played live, it was never less than completely exciting. You know, so. We just just musically, we all got such a buzz out of playing together, the four of us, that we that that kept us together when everything else wouldn't work, you know, when nothing else worked. And and um, and then, of course, what happened over time as well was that the the equipment got better, and you know, the recording facilities got better, and we got better at using it. And so by the by the time we got to like the two thousands, you know, and we started, we we knew what we were doing exactly and we knew how to record ourselves and capture our sound completely so then it just became about the material you know and it, the emphasis was always on me to come up with the material and so i would like deliver a song to the band and they you know sometimes as a demo sometimes just playing it to them in the room and they would inevitably be able to play it better than i could you know so yeah. it was really exciting to hear everything that i did come alive you know in in the studio and uh um, yeah, we, and we just vibed so well off each other that I think that kept us together when, you know, when there was no money and when, you know, everything else. Um, so your your follow up was Mona Lisa, wasn't it? Which was yeah. was this the soundtrack? No, it was. Uh, it, it, that, no, that was that was the second. Oh, that was Pandora's Box, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, Pandora's Box was the soundtrack. You know, I mean, Mona Lisa was. Um, oh, that's the the hardest project that I was probably ever involved in with hindsight and it, it just took again it took far too long but it was my fault that it took too long it I was far too precious about the production on it we was we were still working in analog at that point mm -hmm. it was all done 16 track in Carl's living room most of it and uh I was endlessly mixing and remixing and remixing for about the album for about a year and then what happened was I got so sick of it. One day I just peeled all the labels off the dats that we'd been mixing to. And I just assembled what I thought sounded like the best album out of the mixes that we had. And when I played it to Carl, he was like, yeah, it actually sounds really, really good. But you know that those are all like rough reference mixes that we did in the first weekend. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they were, you know, and it was like, all right. So I, I wasted a year of my life trying to perfect that album and it turned out we'd already finished it. I just hadn't realized, you know, and, um, and I never made that mistake again. You know, I've, I stopped being so precious about the snare sound and everything after that. Yes. God, that's amazing. Did you, were you going slightly mad at that stage? Oh yeah. Well, I, I went mad many times uh, <laughs> working on, on subterraneous records uh, over the years. And 
Yeah, but actually, one of the things about it was that we that we we came out of I came out of that experience having no idea what the way forward was going to be, none at all. And then we got off the soundtrack, Pandora's Box soundtrack, uh, which was a completely new lease of life, you know. And and, and also we did, we had a really really supportive record label at that point, which was Rhythm of Life. Yes, it was Paul Haig's label and uh Paul Hake from Joseph K and it was um <clears throat> it was such a, an amazing moment in my career to be able to do that album and take a step back and make music that I did that I didn't have to write lyrics to and I didn't have to you know it, it was just a whole it was just a completely new string to the bow you know and um changed everything for me yes and it meant that i knew and also after that i knew that i only had to write songs when i wanted to i didn't have to write songs to so how did you how did you find or how did he find you know derek jarman discover you or sort of think this is it Derek. yes that was that was that was um much earlier that was back in the angelhead days um in 1990 he was doing um presentation of i think it was the garden at riverside studios in london and i was there on a completely unrelated project and uh, his assistant who i think his name was chris i can't remember um knew who, who i was um for some reason we had there was some other connection and he said um we got talking one day and he said yeah i'm, I'm here i'm working with derek jarman and then I was like, oh, Derek John, I love his work. Because I was a huge Ken Russell fan from a very young age. My dad introduced me to the work of Ken Russell when I was like 12. You know? Oh, and the devils. Did you watch Yeah, them? so I, I was very familiar with Derek because of Ken Russell, you know. So when he said, oh, would you like to come and meet him? He's in the other room and everything. I went and just completely, he was one of the, I mean, he, he, he was well known for being, you know, one of the nicest people around, you know. Um, but... That, you know, there's um, somebody made this tribute to, to Derek, might have even been um, uh, Ludovic Kennedy actually, about how he had his real gift was for friendship, you know, and he was very, very kind to me and very sweet to me. And also, he recognized the problems that I had as well and uh, was hugely sympathetic towards those. Um, he introduced me to Dudley Sutton, uh, who he was working with at the time on. Probably Edward II, I would think, would be the film he was doing just then, and um, and then Dudley um, was very, very influential and important to me. And of course, he actually worked on my first film, so um, you know, Dudley kind of got me started as a filmmaker in my own right. <laughs> my God, yes, because you're from then on, though your career just blossoms, doesn't it? Things just yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to track what, what well, after, after Pandora's box I felt like I could I, I had the right to do anything, you know I didn't feel like I had to be any one thing anymore, you know yeah. um, I wasn't just a singer in a band anymore, I could be a composer or, you know I mean, I could be, I could do be involved in film, film or theatre I just felt much freer after that and, you know, and I was sometimes I would write poetry and it would be distinctly different from the way I would write lyrics. And instead of thinking I have to make this into a song, I'd be like, I'll just put it in a book of poetry, you know, and I felt like I was allowed to do anything after that. Um, and what happened then was that the next album that Subterraneans made, 
because I'd had this totally liberating uh, revelation of the Pandora's box, I, I, the next one was made up entirely of songs I was completely committed to and completely passionate about. And and uh, that album was um, Soul Mass Transit. And I felt like that was our masterpiece. And after that, I had nothing else to prove. And when you have nothing to prove, you can just do anything, you know? And it's like, you know, we didn't have a record company trying to make us sell stuff more. And you know, because of the licensing situation, we didn't have anyone breathing down our neck. And so I got, I got ferociously used to being independent at that point and never wanted to look back. It's like, okay, well, seeing as how I can do anything, I'm going to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, my God, that that's quite extraordinary because you do start sort of going, you start doing films, don't you, as well? This is the the other part of it. Apart from the books of poetry, there is kind of, and also the William Blake Society. So does your mind just kind of at this, do you sort of become like David Bowie in the 70s where everything just kind of <laughs> can, can happen or does happen? Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I just realised that like I, I had... I had a voracious appetite to do all kinds of things and, and I no longer felt like I, you know, w- what I did wasn't, wasn't my identity anymore, you know, and I didn't care about identity anymore. I felt like I, after Soul Mass Transit, I felt like I, that album would stand up for all time as a really, really, really good piece of work and I didn't feel like I had anything to prove after that. And that's... I think for an artist, that's a hugely liberating moment if you can get to that, because uh, then it doesn't matter anymore. You know, I mean, up to that point, every single time I did anything, I wanted to create a masterpiece. I wanted to create a great, lasting work. And then when I actually felt like I had done, so it doesn't matter now. You know, it doesn't matter if the next album's a load of rubbish, as long as I enjoy making it, as long as it's honest, you know, as long as it's the best I could do at the time, that's good enough. So, yes. So, so I just sorry. adopted that philosophy for everything, you know? Yes. So when you decided to make a film, what was the, what was the sort of moment that that sort of came up for you? Was this about well, 2005, 2006? Um, I was, I had, I did some production work for somebody else on a film, um, which was uh, put into a festival, it's a film festival in New York. That was 2004, I think. And I didn't occur to me to like make a film of my own um, until about 2009. Uh, I, I mean, I had, I had like, you know, Super 8 cameras and stuff like that, but I, I never actually committed to a project of any kind. I would just experiment with things visually. And I've always, my dad bought me my first real camera when I was nine years old for my birthday, which was a Practica single lens reflex. And I always loved photography, but it always annoyed me that the, uh, you know, video, analog video cameras and things like the early digital video cameras, the, the quality was so appalling, you know, mm. and my, my perfect tool for filmmaking would have been like a single lens reflex that made films, you know, <laughs> rather than just shot stills. But I am, um, Subterraneans got asked to perform in Berlin um, at the Berlin Wall on the 20th anniversary of the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 2009, and we couldn't do it for various reasons. Several other people had other commitments, and we could. And I thought, I don't want to miss out on this event, 
it's too it's too cool i want to be part of this this event it's a really you know important moment and um so i thought about what i could do and then i thought well i could make a film you know and send that you know and i spoke to them about the organizers and they were like yeah we'll do that we're happy to do that so then i made a film about which was inspired by walls <laughs> basically and albin rising was, was the film and and I wanted to get, you know, basically create a soundtrack with a montage of images that I shot on various cheap cameras and different places, including Berlin, but mostly in, in England. And, um, but then when it came to performing the poetry, I actually realized, well, I needed other people for this. And come to think of it, I do know a few actors, you know, like I was friends with Juliet Landau and uh, uh, Dudley and, you know, and my friend Suzanne Andrade. And so I just called them all up and said, um, I'm, I've decided to make a film. I need people to read these poems. Would you be up for it? And they all said yes. <laughs> and and they raised the quality much higher than I had any right to expect, you know, because they all did such an amazing job on it. And so the film actually had a life beyond what it was meant to, um, considering I shot most of it on a camera i bought on ebay for 40 pounds you know yes well <laughs> that's very <laughs> you know, diy isn't it but you know on the one hand i had the, the cheapest camera ever and i had like a, a really early version of some software on the computer that i was using and on the other hand i had dudley so on the very first day i was able to say so dudley what would, what would fellini do in this situation <laughs> <laughs> things like that and he would know because he'd work with him you know so i was spoiled with those people and and also at the time, I was uh, spending quite a lot of time with Andrew Birkin, Jane Birkin's brother, who's a screenwriter and filmmaker. And, and uh, he gave me some really interesting points on screenwriting, um, which I didn't do straight away, which, which came to be very influential on me later on. And uh, um, he, he uh, yeah, just, so I, 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 didn't have to network because I already knew these people through music, you know, and and uh, it's just a question of asking, calling, asking for, for some favours, really. Yes, absolutely. So, was it the case then that with with the Subterraneans, it's you know, you you could just keep that going while doing other projects, and then sort of working with Lena Lovich as well. Well, that was a bit different because um, what happened there was. Um, I, I I was running out of steam really because I had done so many different things and uh, and we were, we made an album called um, Subterraneans made an album called This Too Shall Pass and that I after Soul Mass Transit I thought everything was going to be easy because that album was so easy to make it was such a breeze to make and I thought everything was going to be like that but I was wrong <laughs> and uh, This Too Shall Pass was a really difficult album to make and. Uh, not as difficult as Mona Lisa, but still you know, up there. And and then afterwards, I wanted to do. I just I don't know. I just wanted to do something else, and I was unfulfilled in certain ways. Like you know, because being the singer in the band and being the front man meant that I could never just cut loose and pretend to be Jimmy Page. You know. Yes, that's important. Stuff that I still wanted to do. You know. And um, so I decided to take some time out. Um, and then after the last subterranean show which was the day before my 40th birthday 
I decided so I wanted nothing in the diary just to see what, what what happened, what transpired if I didn't plan anything. And then the very next day, I got a call from Jerome Parker Wells, who was putting together a, a jazz ensemble, like a experiment on jazz ensemble to, to perform Kurt Vile songs on the road. And he said, could you think of anyone interesting to front this band, you know? And they, they had John Sinclair on the tour. Um, right. The Life manager, White Panthers guy, and I thought this could be interesting. But many, many, many years before that, in the in the early nineties, I spent a bit of time with uh, Nina Hagen, and I um, one day I was playing an album called Tank Battles by Dagmar Kraus from Henry Cow, and it which were English translations of Kurt Vile songs, and Nina absolutely hated this record and was like that's so terrible. She should be singing in German. If you, you should get an English speaker, if you want to hear it in English and all sort of thing. And then and I remembered her saying, Lainey Lovitch would have done that so much better. And so I remembered that comment when I was talking to Jerome and I said, well, what about Lainey Lovitch? If you can get her, maybe she'll want to do it. And he's like, oh, that's a great idea. So they, he went off to see if he could track down Lainey. And I didn't think any more of it. And then a few weeks later, I heard from him again. And he's like, We've got Lena. She's on board. She wants to do the show, but she doesn't want to do all of it herself. We need another singer. Are you available? You know. <laughs> so I said, "Yeah, of course, I'll do it." So I wound up. Lena and I wound up doing this crazy jazz tour of Kurt Vile songs with John Sinclair, and um, and it was really difficult, and because we none of us were in our comfort zone at all, you know. And it was obvious to me every single night of that tour that people were coming to see Lena because they hadn't seen her for yes. years. And I said to her, so why don't you go back on the road and just do your own stuff? And she's like, oh, well, it's, for various reasons, she thought it was too difficult. And, she, you know, she because she was sort of that of the old school music industry, which she fell out with, she didn't want to have to deal with that again. And And then I said to her, well, you know what? I've been able to run my band on a shoestring for like 20 odd years now. So it's possible, it's doable. And then, and I said, yeah, if you ever want to try something, let me know. And then a couple of months later, she called me up and she'd I'd been offered a, a festival in Europe and wanted to know if Subterraneans were available to, to be her band for the night. And they weren't, they weren't available. But I said, well, you know, it's the same amount of work to just form a band. If we're going to have to learn a set of songs anyway, we might as well just get a bunch of musicians together who are good and get along with each other and just just get a band together and do it that way. And so we did, and that band wound up... Well, they're still going. I mean, I, I was in the band for eight years, you know, but they're actually still going. And they'll be um, nine, well, ten, nearly 10 years now. So... Um, yeah, and, that's amazing. You know, that, yeah, and you know, and it brought Lena back from, you know, obscurity and got her back on the road, back in front of fans. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, and I got to, and I got to just prance around on guitar every night instead, and finally fulfil that ambition. You know, <laughs> so. it must be so much nicer occasionally to just know that you can just kind of wander onto the edge of the stage or around the edge of this, not not being the first yeah. you know, the person who has to sort of come up with some um, the amusing bit of banter or chat. Yeah, or... it was, well, I mean, I still used to do that periodically, you know, because, you know, you could take the boy out of the band, but, you know, <laughs> but uh, I was, but I, um, no, it was actually hugely enjoyable to not be the one, you know, at the front, you know, um, for a change, really. 
I, I you know, I've done that for such a long time that, um, you know, I don't have any hunger left for that, you know, really. And, yes. you know, so and going back just... to your Kirk Vile, because I saw there was an amazing evening with uh, Barry Humphreys and Meow Meow doing the work of the Weimar Republic. This was a few years ago in London, and um, it was kind of quite gripping. Did you enjoy doing the work of Kirk Vile? I did. I mean, um, my big moment was doing, um, you know, Whiskey Bar, you know, Alabama song. Yes, the Doors. The, the, the Doors had done a great version of that, you know. So yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mind at all um, trying to live up to Jim Morrison there. But, but actually, there, there's a little twist in the tale of that story because... Um, I was visiting my my mum at Christmas, like I think it was the Christmas after Lainer and I started touring together with the Lane Lovage band. And my mum had she had a, there was a box of records in my old bedroom in the in the corner of the, the room. And I went through it and I that Dagmar Krauss album was in there, Tank Battles, and I pulled it out and it turned out it had nothing to do with Kurt Vile. It was actually an album of Hans Eisler songs. I just remembered it wrong. And uh, <laughs> So the band that's now been together for nearly 10 years only happened because I completely misremembered a comment that Nina Hagen made 20 years before that. Yes, you know. well, I, th- I think it's, 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 <laughs> it's quite good to make, you know, we, we construct these false yeah. narratives, don't yeah, we, all yeah, the time. Yeah, uh, you know, being right is massively overrated, you know. Yeah, sometimes, you know. <laughs> like, as long as you do it with innocence and sort of a good intention, I think, you know, it's not like... Yes, you don't feel like, oh, my God, that was terrible, wasn't it? And, you know, but then, yeah, so, so how do you then sort of, because did you kind of earlier mention the Angie, Angie Bowie moment? How did you, did you, how did you bump into Angie? Um, God, that's a very good question. Um, such a long time, I don't know if I, I think I, I happened across her online or something, like, in the early days of the internet, <laughs> and uh, um, oh, I think she had just done her book, um, Backstage Passes, right? Yeah, and uh, and I heard some music that she had worked on, and I thought it was really interesting. And um, and I contacted her and I asked her if, if, if she had any plans to release it, and she said, Well, there's a whole album, but I don't know what. How, how to do that and I was like well I've got a record label if you're interested <laughs> we can we can look into doing that and and she was so we 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 did we put her album out in the UK and um but Angie was um such a well she is such a force of nature that um I just um found it hugely inspiring just to talk to her about everything anything you know um She's one. She's another one of my mentors, you know, for sure. And um, I've learned so much from her. But also, she's, you know, she has a her, you know, reputation in the media couldn't be further from the truth. You know, they they have got her so so wrong. It's shocking to me. You know, um, when when my mother died, for example. Um, Angie's advice to me probably saved my sanity. You know, um, she really, really, really helped me cope with um, through some very dark times, and so I'm hugely grateful to her. And 
you know, that's not the sort of thing that Piers Morgan knows about, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Who cares about Piers? Yeah, exactly, you know. But, you know, I've seen some really rotten stuff written about her over the years, and and it's like, I can't can't even compute that they're talking about the same person. No, I mean, it's very mean and unpleasant, and, you know, it's kind of... and, And on that... That's just, you know, as I was saying about that band, you know, Shelley, Shelley Ann Orphan, where they just had made up a story about who the members of the band were without actually finding out anything about them, just assumed yeah. and wrote about it. And and it becomes like fact in everyone's mind, but it's like, no, it's not true at all. Actually. Oh, God, there's many versions of that going, yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I, once, I once was involved in a Bjork project um, because she, I was looking after the estate of Billy McKenzie at the time, who um, was a really close friend of mine. And um, she wanted to do a duet with Billy. And so she, on a particular song, so me and Michael Dempsey, who was the associates bass player from that era, who had also played on the first Cure album, we um, went into the studio looking for this track that she wanted and we didn't find it. The only version of it that we could find on a multi-track was from a live recording. So we just pulled that off there and sent it to her. And then uh, and then she gave some interview to like some glossy magazine a while later, Q or Vox or one of those magazines, in which she talks about um, listening to Billy's multi-tracks and, and the way he would work and the way he would sing, none of which was true. She never had access to that material at all. And it was just, it was a complete lie. And... Um, yeah, and I, I, I sort of, I actually contacted the one little Indian and said, uh, "This is what's, what's this bullshit I'm reading?" You know, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, yeah, it's just press. It's just yeah, don't worry about it. It's just, it's just media. It's just for, to get the column images. It will help pro- plug the record or whatever." And I, so I just let it go. Now it's on Wikipedia, you know. Now it's like, and they, then they use her interview as a, as a source, <laughs> you know to talk about how Billy McKenzie would work in the studio and it's just nonsense, you know, and, and I, I should have been more vigilant about pulling it at the time, you know, but now it's an, it's an unchallenged fact now, even though it's, it's horrendous. My God, that's yeah, no, but it is annoying. And we have sleepless nights being irritated by it. Have you ever sort of thought you'd like to do a documentary about Angie? You know, because I was saying that because obviously (laughs) I have an obsession with David Bowie. And I I realised that, you know, if it wasn't for Angie and and Tony DeFries, in a way, David wouldn't have been the person. I um, have made a documentary about Angie. Have you? Yeah. um, I've only ever made one documentary in my life. But I mean, it's nowhere near finished. But in 2016, I I went to Atlanta and I interviewed her for hours on camera about that stuff because um, she's really the only living witness now. I mean, you know, from a lot of that, she's the only one who who you know covers the whole of that era when he was actually great. You know, from like 69 to 1980. You know. Because for me, Scary Monsters is the last great Bowie moment. You know, I never thought he ever came close to that ever again. And and uh, but what happened there? I, if you have time for this, um, <laughs> this is my one my one scrape with Hollywood and uh, the company that we were in discussions with about this this film, this documentary. It, this was like 
it happened. This is like six or seven months after he died. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a very, very, very hot topic. And my thing was that I wanted to make a film about Angie, not about David. But because it was a film about Angie, David was never to form a huge part of it, a very important part of it, you know. But it wasn't going to be just that, you know. So, and they just could not grasp this. And they kept referring to it as the David Bowie documentary. In every email, they would refer to it as the, you know. And then at one point, they said, we're a little bit worried that we might meet sort of David Bowie saturation because all, all these other people are coming out of documentaries. And every single time I communicated with them, I had to say, you do realise this is not a film about David Bowie. This is a film about Angie. Mm. And, and I got so sick of it. And then, you know, and also I was having a really difficult time uh, professionally and personally. You know, I'd lost my mother a few months into this project and uh, end of 2016, she died. And, and I had to deal with a lot of, like, you know, just personal stuff, like, you know, coping with that. I'd had a, I'd been through a breakup and my cat died, you know. I don't know, just that it wasn't the right time for me to have to deal with people like that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I, what I did was I took the footage, which I still have, and I just said, well, you know, you're not getting this unless we come to an agreement that we're doing the film that we want to do about Angie. I'm not giving you anything. Because they were like, well, maybe we can make you enough of your footage. And I was like, no, uh, it's not, that's not the way it's going to be, you know. So, um, but I also learned in that process that I am not a documentarian, you know. Um, that's not the kind of filmmaking that I'm good at. You know, I didn't do the best job on this. And, you know, we're talking about a subject that is somebody who I really, who I know really well, who, and I am well qualified to, to tell that story because I know it so well. But um, I still didn't feel like I had the chops to make a good documentary, just technically, you know. Yeah. It's very specific talent that you need to be able to do that. And I, I just don't have it, you know. Um, but um, yeah, but yeah, so that, but that, but yeah, there was, an, there was an attempt to make exactly that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's kind of a shame because I, I suppose I have an obsession and interest in various things and, and, and sort of I suppose the archiving, which is kind of what a documentary is, kind of. Um, yeah, I just find it kind of fascinating to, to just put, you know, put the story or the record out there. And to, and well, to... that's part, yeah, that's, that's part of the problem though when you're dealing with somebody like, like David Bowie because um, the truth is not, doesn't doesn't always fit the myth you know and um you know the truth is is that he you know he, he wasn't that good to her you know <laughs> they weren't that good for each other there were terribly toxic moments in that relationship which don't which wouldn't show him in a particularly good light and people prefer the myth you know and but there were people who were actually angry with us for wanting to tell the truth about him you know and and in particular the companies you know, they, they, they just want to sell something. They don't really, and their thing is like, they don't want, they, 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 at no point were they willing to be the company that told the, the raw, uncut truth about David Bowie with the good and the bad, you know. I mean, mm. we, yeah, were never yeah. going, we were never going to take away from him what, what a genius he was, you know what I mean? That was never going to happen because he was, you know, we're not, there's no debate about that. 
but at the same time, it's like, you know, I, 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 my thing has always been that I, I think it's more useful to say to people, you know, to say, you know, these people, they're not gods, they're just human beings, but isn't it amazing what human beings can do? You know, <laughs> like, like John Lennon or whoever it is, you know, just look at what human beings can do when they're not, when they're not each other over basically you know what i mean and which is what it seems to spend most of the time doing. we human beings can do amazing wonderful important lasting inspirational things and that's that was really the angle that i wanted to take to so, say you know just to humanize him and say look david bay was a human being what an amazing thing he did just by being a human being you know and and also but then at the same time to humanize him you have to tell the truth you have to say he wasn't perfect and he did do a few awful things and but it's like it's like princess diana you know they, they don't want to hear it you know they, they're just you know they're always going to shoot the messenger <laughs> yes well it's it's kind of it it is interesting and i'm you know i'm sort of fascinated because yeah it's it's kind of interesting because it, I, I know so much to sort of try and sort of unravel with that because because the stuff he did in the 60s was pretty forgettable and if it wasn't for what happens next we'd have completely deleted it in Woolworths well, really yeah i mean and the th- and then also you know if you think about like the, the the length of his marriage to angie those 11 years from what 69 to 1980 when they got divorced those were his best years and you know i don't think anyone can argue with that i mean even people who like his later work can't possibly think it's better than anything he produced between 1969 and 1980, you know? Um, I mean, really, you know, if you think it's from Space Oddity to Ashes to Ashes, I mean, almost flawless for a decade, you know? And <laughs> uh, No, I mean, there was one album a year, several live albums two records he produced with you know Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and and relocated in various kind of places around the the world and I just think you know how I don't know how anyone could have done that you know and and made a few films as well I don't you know I still don't quite make I can't imagine one of the things is as well um you know with hindsight you know he has this amazing reputation for for having huge concepts and Obviously, you know, Ziggy Stardust, Lad Insane, Diamond Dogs, all that stuff where he knew exactly what he was doing. But occasionally he made records when he had no idea what he was doing. And I think those are his best works for me, which would be Man of the World, Station to Station and Low. And I think that those are his best works when he was just seeing what was out there, experimenting and being willing to, to go out on a limb and not caring what the record company thought, you know. And... Uh, yeah, so there's that you know I like I like him I liked him when he was at his loosest and least sort of conceptual really. You know? Yes, well it's it's yeah I think I don't know I just I know recently there's been this new podcast Main Man Productions with Tony DeFries who's been okay. talking I think about alive. Well, <laughs> it it is kind of it is worth having a listen to all these because because not only does Tony DeFries talks a lot about his stuff 
and and the history of it. He's also got a lot of the characters who were there as well, who've also telling their side of the story as well. So there is kind of quite a bit more in, in there, which is fascinating. And um, and then, you know, recently John Cambridge has brought his book out, The Drummer, and talks about how he got sacked from being in the band and then Woody takes over. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of stories that are sort of like people, because John Cambridge said, you know, I just wanted to tell my story of what ha- really happened in that time, not not hear some sort of like, well, that's not, you know, that was the kind of motivation to think, no, I need to write my book because I'm really fed up with hearing this this kind of idea and it wasn't they, like um, that at all. They made a documentary about Mick Ronson a few years ago, um, which they tragically called Beside Bowie, which I think completely underrates Mick Ronson, you know, and, um, and at no point really did I ever get the impression that they were willing to come right out and say, you know, that, that Mick Ronson was the only person who ever shared a stage with David Bowie that who really gave him a run for his money, you know, because <laughs> he did. Yes. Um, which is probably why, you know, it didn't last. Um, but, but a couple of months ago, I did an interview. Actually, I'll see if I, what are you, I might even, oh, shit, I don't know if I've got there. I've got a whole Bowie section there you might have seen. Anyway, I did this interview with this guy called Robin Mayhew, which was quite interesting. Because, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Because he, he was in a band called The Presidents from the 60s, and but he was very good on sound. Presidents then, of the United States of America? No, no, from the 60s. One of those beat bands. It looks quite religious, that cover. Um, yeah. Anyway, he it was in like his... a Scientology book. He does, actually. Actually, quite a few of the Bowie band were Woody and uh, Mick Carson. Anyway, yeah. so he was in this band, and then he became a bit of a sound engineer, and then he got a tap on the shoulder because Bowie had played a live gig, and it was really terrible. And Andrew right. Bowie came up to him and said, look, I've just listened to your band. You know how to do the sound, don't you? Do you want to work with us? And he said, yeah, okay. And he went on tour for two years and did Ziggy Stardust. The, the actual right. tour for two mm-hmm. but then he becomes a sound man now when you mentioned about the passions I kind of got the impression the way the way his business came to an end was he lent or rented his equipment to this band and they went to Italy and everything burnt down to a grand and they didn't have any insurance and I'm sure that was the passions right <laughs> Or Flying Lizard. Oh, I should have got this. I didn't know we were going to talk about the passions or Flying Lizard, right. actually. But I would have rehearsed that a bit more. But anyway, it's it's kind of interesting. But again, it was kind of Angie who who said, look, we need this man on our side because he can do the sound engineering and we've got a terrible sound. Anyway, yeah. and he yeah. sent me the, he, he probably shouldn't have done, but he sent me the live album from the, from the recording studio with a copy of the ticket. <laughs> which was very sweet of him. He obviously was sorting out his stuff. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a detour. But um, um, yeah, it was just kind of interesting when you when you do these interviews with people and, and they kind of give you those little insights into how mm-hmm. things kind of happened. And it, it kind of came back to Angie who said, you know, who, who was the one who tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, could you come and do the sound for us? Because, you know, our band, I think that was when Bowie was doing Hype at the time and it right. was just, it was just a, a noise and a mess. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I can, I can sort all that out. And, um, and it was like suddenly Ziggy Stardust and he spent two years doing that. So that was the end. That was it. So look, on that, on that exciting note, what's your next project that you're, you're working on at the moment? 
Uh, I'm working on a film called Little Johnny Jewel, um, which is uh, all set in uh, Marshalltown, Iowa. And uh, then I'm planning uh, more films after that. And I'm, you know, also, I mean, <laughs> in terms of music, because um, I've, I've done two albums with um, a pianist called Marina Vesic, who, who's based in Vienna. And we have a, a duo called Your Ghost. And we did a couple of uh, and albums which were piano rearrangements of mostly of subterranean songs actually and a few other bits and pieces here and there and i wrote a couple of new songs for the last one and um um yeah so that's a kind of open-ended thing if i feel like doing a song i just you know throw the idea at marina and then you know i get a perfectly recorded piano arrangement back in you know in the in the ether within a couple of days you know and then so I'm going to, you know, I think we, we're going to do, we don't know what we're going to do next yet, but we are going to do something for sure. We're not anywhere close to done yet. In terms of live performances, because of COVID, I haven't really, hasn't even crossed my mind, you know. Um, I mean, the last live performance that I did with Lena was 28th of October, I think it was. So it's almost at the two-year anniversary of my last live appearance. And um, in 2019, and little, of course, did I realise that that was the last live performance that anyone was going to do for a while. <laughs> yes. So I got out at the right time, you know, really with all that stuff. So I don't know. Um, that said, I am. Um, I was recently um, through someone's generosity. I recently came into possession of a very, very nice. Guitar and a Gibson Les Paul, the best, nicest one I've ever seen or touched, which I now own. And um, I'm not quite sure why, why, what I'm going to do with it, but it would seem rude not to use it now that I have it. You know. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. My God. And then, like I say, I, you know, I'm, you know, I, I've been, I did, I did some um, experimental sound with Guy from Subterraneans and also uh, Amanda Kramer from psychedelic furs um, um, she did some piano some keyboard stuff for us and it was very interesting actually and um that's going to be on a soundtrack of a of an experimental film that i made which is my tribute to derek jarman and uh she's long overdue so yeah it's quite a lot of quite a lot going on and um somebody suggested that i once did a collection of uh, lyrics um, and it covered like the first arbitrary 17 years of my my career and it turns out that was 17 years ago now so they're saying that volume two is about due um so that which would be a book a book i don't know if i'm going to do that and also i've got a ton of paintings that i've done as well which um, um you know people have been saying to me oh you should, you should exhibit your paintings and my God, you've got a lot on, haven't you? There is a lot to sort out. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm at my ears in 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 making the film, so that's the that's the most important thing right now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, just last question: I mean, if you could have said whispered something into your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, is there any kind of little bit of worldly advice that you would have thought, oh yeah, that would have been quite handy to have known, or would it have been like 
I wouldn't have listened if I'd mentioned anything. Well, yeah, I, I think really what I would, I would, I would tell myself to be less precious about things, you know, um, you know, you know, with things like, for example, one of the reasons that we never got, you know, the, the, the level of like press that we deserved probably at that time was because I wanted, I didn't, I didn't, I wanted the music to do the talking. I was very adamant that I wanted the music to do the talking, that I wanted to succeed without using those sort of tools and, you know, fuck MTV and all this sort of stuff. You know, I had this, this very radical, um, very militant idea of the right and wrong way to promote yourself. You know, yes. and nowadays, I think I would just say to myself, just do the flipping interview, just do the, you know, because if you don't, there'll be like 20 other people who will, you know, and I would just, <laughs> so I would tell myself to be less precious about things like that. Um, but also I would remind myself, um, just tell the truth all the time because then you don't have, ever have to try to remember what it was you said. You know, the only thing, the only, the only th if you tell the truth all the time, the only thing you're in danger of doing is repeating yourself. You're not actually in danger of ever being caught, you know, in a lie. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you don't have to remember what the story yeah. is. Yeah, you, you only have to remember what actually happened as best as you can. And then you fine. can't be, you can't be sort of like, oh yes, that's true. Did you have an experience like that then? Um, when I was very young, I did. Yeah, when I was at school, because I um, um, yeah, there was a parent-teacher evening when I guess I would have been about eight or nine years old, probably. And um, I used to sit next to somebody in, in in class whose father was a doctor, and they used to seat you alphabetically in those days. So his surname began with a P, and mine begins with an R. You know, which is why I was sat next to him, and, and then my parents came home from this meeting with my teacher um accusing me of having lied and said that my dad was a doctor and it was immediately obvious to me that he had just the teacher just got me mixed up with the kid that sit, sits next to me in the class you know but when you're that age um the inclination is not to believe you the inclination is you know what i mean it, so yeah i I'm, i was a bit um i was I suffered some righteous indignation at a very young age, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and I blamed adults for it. So uh, I still feel that way about adults, actually. Yes, God, it can be it can be hard to let that go at that age. It feels so kind of humiliating. Yeah. But I just sort of thought, if I was just relentlessly true, you know, honest, as honest as I could be, and of course, the funny thing about 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 being honest is. Um, it, it, it's not because for any moral reason, it's just because it's easier. I'm too lazy to make something up. I don't think anything's actually worth lying about anyway. But also, I just uh, um, really, yeah, just, I mean, I I can tell the same story 10 different ways, but it, the story's basically the same. You know? Yes. Um, helps you, I think it helps your memory. It stops you getting confused about things if you just only have to remember one thing you know this is true now look this is brilliant do you ever, are you ever going to come back to norwich well not come back but you're going to visit norwich again don't know um probably not i mean i'm currently in the uh, immigration uh, system 
over here. So it may, that takes a long time. So I can't say with any certainty when, um, but also nobody has been traveling in the last 12 months anyway, really, because of the, the COVID situation. So um, yeah, I mean, maybe one day I'll, I'll, get, to, I'll get to visit. and a fine know. city that is Norwich, isn't it? Yeah. I have some very fond uh, memories of uh, of Norwich. Um, the uh, I was I spent I was in Norwich on the one New Year's Eve early in this early in this century, uh, and um, they were they used to project. Uh, they probably still do, but they used to project stuff onto the town hall. Yes, in the in the, in the big square. You know what I mean? Yeah, and. Uh, I just remember this gigantic projection of Nicholas Parsons, <laughs> <laughs> who, of course, is for many people of my generation and older, embodies Norwich. You know, Sail of the Century was Sail the, of the century, wasn't it? Yes. big Norwich show when I was a kid. You know? <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, that nice and Commons Mustard, which, of course, um, every, you know, I can get Commons Mustard here. I have, that's the only mustard I ever buy. So, um, I have loyalty, haven't you, to the place? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. If you, well, you have a recording as well now, don't you? So, <laughs> well, I have one side of it. <laughs> <laughs> but look, thanks. And, and if you want, I can always send you the link to it and then you can sure, always yeah. use it. But that, that would be no problem. But thanks again for this time. And uh, look, best of luck for your future and everything okay. else that you're okay. doing. But anyway, really? nice to speak to you. Yeah, take care there. See you All later. Bye bye. Bye-bye. And that's how you finish a conversation. Snappy, you say. Well, perhaps not. But anyway, look, I enjoy listening to that last moment. And that was me in conversation with Jude Rawlins about life, love, poetry. You've just listened to it, so you don't need me to babble on, do you? Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. David Eastor, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. These have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Indeed, you can. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.